And the little chihuahua says, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Hacker Slash. If you're joining us again, welcome back. I be the Witch of the Wood, and I have come to steal you. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the party. We are a horror movie review podcast dedicated to telling you whether a movie is a hack. A total joke. A waste of time. Or a slash. Totally killer. Pun intended. We believe horror is for everyone, and as such, we're rating these movies with the perspective we've gained from our varying walks of life and the flavors of fear we fancy most. My name is Chris. I'm your friendly neighborhood slasher enthusiast. This week, I'm joined by the superfly space guy, Mac. I will guide thy hand. And the classic horror connoisseur, Sean. Wouldest thou like to live deliciously? This episode is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist grooming. This week, we're traveling back to a 2015 film that drops us 62 years before the Salem Witch Trials. Before we get down to business, though, we have some follow-up. Let's follow up on a movie. We recently watched Hellraiser from this year, 2022. And boy, I enjoyed it. I know everyone else here seemed to enjoy it. And we asked you, what did you think? And guess what? 81% of you slashed it and only 19% hacked it. That sounds favorable. Sounds right. Well, boy, do we have some sites to show you. Mostly, it's, you know, your thoughts on the film. So over on Patreon, Samurai said, I emerge from the Leviathan configuration having seen a true slash. Got to read this novella, though, because hot damn. I mean, honestly, is there a better way to tempt you into reading than watching this movie? Never even uh, read the novella. Have either of you actually read it? I started reading some of it. I did not get to finish before the movie, but it is very brief and easily accessible. So I do recommend it. I know one of our patrons has. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. Now, Jake says, "'Twas a soft slash. Just wish it was shorter by 30 minutes. Eh, not my kind of horror. The original was okay, but I'm just not big on this kind of concept. I think 30 minutes shaved off the end could have could have done some work. I think uh, I was satisfied with the overall runtime, but I'm curious, Jake, then where you would have liked that to, to end. Now, Mark says, I'm so happy about this. I actually preferred this movie to the original. It gave me more of the Cenobites, better lore, and Jamie Clayton was so good. Now that to me, that's that's a hot take right there. Better than the original. That's that's a big a big claim. That is a big claim. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's better than the original, but I do agree with the points. So that's interesting. Jamie Clayton's just that good. Over on Instagram, Robbie said, "As a diehard Hellraiser fanatic, I love this remake." Nat said, "Loved it, but could have been hornier and gorier." Listen, it can always be hornier, and it can always be gorier. Talon didn't agree, saying, "Hulu Razor did not impress me." Hulu Razor. Nice. Alan says, a nice addition to the Hellraiser universe. Visually great and looking forward to more. Cobain said, I enjoyed it. Still doesn't touch the original, though. The Hellpriest is killer. And finally, Gabe says, I feel like it didn't give or take anything away from the original. I like the gore. I feel like as a prequel, there should have been a little more in-depth about who and what they are, where they come from, etc. I feel like they really didn't do much other than like a retelling of the first story, but also half-assed it. That made me feel bad for loving pain and pleasure, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can see how you'd feel bad for enjoying pain and pleasure, especially because of the depths of pain that they go to in this movie. But this definitely is not a, a prequel. It's a retelling, right? So, you know, Gabe, I'd be curious to know if you went into this with a fresh perspective, like, A, knowing what it is now, would it fare better on a rewatch, especially if you went in with the expectation that it would be a prequel? Fair point. And lastly, we want to say hello and thank you to our newest patron, Jay. Welcome to the family. Yay, Jay. And that's our follow-up. 
Well, traveling back in time, when Robert Eggers was a small child growing up in New England, he was fascinated by witches. After a lifetime of fascination with folk tales and written accounts of historical witchcraft, Eggers began writing the script for a period film that would ultimately become his directorial debut. The film explores the pain a 1630s New England family endures as they encounter mysterious disappearances, hardships, and signs of witchcraft. This week, we're talking about The Witch. Who's seen this one before? I definitely have seen this one before. I watched it when it came out back in 2015, but I haven't seen it since. This has been on my watch list for years, and I feel bad that it took this long to get to it, but I have not seen it until we are covering it now. So this is one of those movies that was hotly overhyped back in the day. Not that I ever doubted it would be a good thing, but there were just so many people talking about it that I could not realistically like, give it a fair shot had I watched with the expectations that had been placed upon me. So I'm actually really happy now that we're finally getting to it because I kind of got back to a neutral state on this film. Like, yes, I know logistically or objectively, people have said amazing things about this movie, but I couldn't remember a damn thing in detail of what they said, which realistically is where I need to get with Hereditary. So this movie came out for A24, Hereditary came out soon after, and man, I swear I get like three months into thinking, okay, I might be able to watch Hereditary, and then somebody will bring it up at work saying, oh, have you seen Hereditary? What'd you think about that? I just watched it for the first time. Could you believe when this happened? I'm like, fuck. That being said, though, I went into this with the expectation of it to be great, while also acknowledging it would probably be a slow burn, which I admit thinking about like period pieces in general, I'm not a huge, huge fan of them. So I was a little skeptical about whether or not I'd purely enjoyed this film. You know, I I think for me, folk horror is typically either the bees or nearly two hours of WTF. And from everything I'd heard about this, kind of like you, Chris, I expected the latter. I expected it uh, to just be good, but also just pure madness for the entire runtime. Yeah. First of all, I love the history of witchcraft, right? Really drawn to specifically this time period, the whole 1600s in general. Salem witch trials. I remember going to Salem, Massachusetts as a child and visiting uh, the Salem Witch Trial Museum and just really immersing myself in all of that history. I really fell in love with it. Really just interested in religion of all kinds, but this time period specifically. And I remember watching this film when it first came out and thinking that it was a really interesting film. I remember it being really good, but that being said, I haven't seen it in, I don't know, quite some time. So I was really curious to see how it was going to hold up after all these years. Yeah. See, thinking about like the Salem Witch Trials, it's the horrors that women were faced with for being seen as subservient or being blamed for literally fucking anything that happened. And I know we talked about this a bit in our Fear Street 1666 episode. And I think that kind of movie where you take the twist that that pulled into how they how they portray the characters based on the rest of the trilogy. When you think about the central romance in that movie, that movie did a lot to really have me captivated. And, and I, it felt compelling for a 1600s movie. So when I went into this and I thought, oh, I might end up being a little bit bored. I was really surprised to find that I wasn't bored at all. And man, I also wasn't expecting for this movie to just be so painful. So I, again, knew nothing about the plot. I knew that there's a family. I knew there was a goat. And I knew that someone was going to live deliciously. And that's it. So to, to be in this movie and to see what this family goes through every step of the way, 
I was hooked completely the entire way through. Yeah, I mean, this movie makes you very glad to live in the present day with all of like the mun details of everyday life, but those are nearly constantly overcast by this intense level of suspense, gloom, and pure grotesqueness. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a lot of feelings watching this movie. Um, and one of the biggest things is that, you know, I imagine this time period in the 1600s as being like one of the scariest times to live outside of maybe the dark ages or something like that, right? Just in general, even the woods up there in like the northern east coast, New England, Maine, all of that, they're just straight up fucking scary. Like I, I've been in woods up there. Uh, my, my grandparents have a, have a house in Jefferson, Maine in the middle of nowhere and they're surrounded by woods and it's creepy even in the daytime and you can get lost so easily in those woods and you mentioned earlier chris like how there was the certain expectation of like slowness to this movie and i think we all anytime you get in a full car there's especially in the 1600s you think there's going to be some of that so i was i don't even know if surprised is the right word i think i was shocked that this movie like jumps right in to showing you hey there's no holes barred things are going to get wild and it was able i think to like just string that along from start to finish it kept that that theme the entire time and i was not expecting that i was expecting like you said just kind of a slow burn oh absolutely there are two shocking moments in this movie that figuratively had my jaw on the floor i was completely shocked by some of the visuals that we get not that this movie is like you know we just talked about hellraiser not that it's intensely gory or disgusting or grotesque but because this movie drops you into such depth with its characters and, you know, it has you, you know, emotionally invested in what's happening. There are two moments in here that I found completely jarring and so disconnected in terms of what I was expecting that when this movie ended, I, I thought, what the hell did I just watch? But not in a bad way, but in a holy shit, I don't think I've had that kind of feeling in a while kind of way. Yeah, that's interesting. So the feelings, I don't know, like, for me, this film um, had a lot of interesting feelings. I can't tell like, so I'm not religious by any means. But and so I maybe I can't relate to the film in that sense. But I am very interested in all things religion. And I think that that's why I'm so captivated by this film and, and even other films like The Exorcist and anything that deals with religion as a foundation for the story. Um, but one thing that I that I felt, uh, um, throughout this film was that it really sheds light on a very dark time in American history that really dates back even to Europe with, you know, where misogyny and, and uh, jealousy are used to, you know, accuse or denounce innocent women of witchcraft, which is like almost impossible to prove or disprove, right? So it, very, very interesting feelings throughout this film. Yeah, it's interesting that you point that out, Sean, because, you know, I know that we've, I think we've shared at some points over the course of the show what our, our individual religious beliefs are. I think it's interesting that you come from someone as, who doesn't have a religious background at all, but is fascinated by it. I am someone who is not religious at all, and I am not interested in it. But I do respect it, right? Like, I'm not someone who's particularly, like, kind of yuck your yums and really, like, denounce any kind of religion or your belief in a higher power or anything like that. So I find that movies that deal with spirituality, while they creep me out when I was raised Catholic as a child, it has completely lost its effect. So when I watch this movie, I lose the creepiness or the scariness of the religious aspects, and all I really see are just everybody accusing women and denouncing women. And it's a different type of pain, right? Or it's a different type of horror to look at, which I think this movie does a really beautiful job of balancing the two. Yeah, but then that is 
scary in and of itself, right? That's scary, you know, maybe as a woman living in that time period, like that is horrific. Wasn't scary to me because that's just who I am, you know, but there are some great moments that are so tense that you're like on the edge of your seat because you're like, they wouldn't do this. They absolutely. And then they were just like, not only are we going to do it, we're going to show you. We're going to show you how crazy we are at showing you how crazy they were. Yeah. And you know what? For all the moments this this movie says, uh, but wait, hold my beer. I'm going to take it up a notch. I'm completely shocked by how different this feels from any other entry I've seen into like 1600s New England or, or colonial life or, you know, even just a movie about witchcraft in general. And I think it's because of du- the duality of the horror and the depth of the characters. Because, man, I usually do not give a shit about a little family unit. I mean, when you think about it, this movie is Dad moves entire family into a house and spooky shit happens. So fundamentally, it's the Amityville horror, right? But it still feels like it so effortlessly weaves its genre pieces, its horror pieces, and then just the emotional undercurrent with, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy's performance. This movie is just stunning and unique. Yeah, I gotta say, the film is very methodical in the way that the story is delivered. The film is super eerie and unsettling, even a little spooky in a sense. Very suspenseful throughout the film. But yeah, it literally took a lot of historical documentation around the time period with witchcraft and taking inspiration from, uh, you know, actual journals and diaries and stuff. And they even put that towards that at the end of the movie, right? And actual court cases, uh, that, uh, and whatnot that are really put in into life in the form of a film. And it gives you insight on just how dark and deranged it was back then. To me, there hasn't been a film quite like this one before, and I feel like it's very original in the way that it tells the story and how it takes all of the information and really brings it to life and, and for us all to watch it unfold. Yeah, you know, I, I think if you feel similarities to other films, you're, you're not crazy. Like, there's there's obviously the period piece vibes which you're gonna you know if you've seen the crucible you're gonna you're gonna get some of that going on here maybe a little bit of fear street i had some of that going on as well um there's there's some elements to the story that you mentioned chris we've seen in a lot of other horror films because it's just like the basics of making a horror film especially about a family but i think like you said sean this this story this telling this like this family and their struggles in particular are absolutely original and nuts and the way that it's on screen here i was not prepared for it did not expect and it stands alone even in full core okay but here's the thing there is an element of this movie that i feel is a little bit rinse and repeat and i did not know this going in of course when i saw this i really wished i had seen this movie before another a24 film but the ending of this movie as spectacular as it is as stunning as it is visually it gave me the same energy as another folklore A24 film. And I cannot unsee that. Oh, 100%. 100%. I like the way that the story wraps up. And it gets to this point where I was like, oh, yeah, like, okay, I can see it. That's cool. And then it gets to this thing that reminds you of another movie. And you're like, okay. So you guys like doing this or, or something? Is that, it's just, this is like your thing? Interesting. I, uh, I think I'm missing what you are alluding to, but maybe I, I, I feel like I've probably seen it, but. I'm trying, I'm having a hard time pulling that in. The very last shot of the movie. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to think of the movie that you're talking about that resonates with that. 
We'll uh, we'll get there in the second half. Just you wait. Well, it sounds like we feel pretty favorably about this movie, but we'll see if that translates into some actual slashes for it. Now, before we rate The Witch, Sean, how would you describe the gore score? You know, this film has a decent amount of gore. Um, You see some gruesome and graphic scenes throughout the film. It may not be as gory as films like, you know, Terrifier or Dead Alive or even like the Evil Dead remake, but it has its place. And I would ultimately say it has like a medium to medium high gore score. Okay. A medium high for effectiveness. And what about the animal report? Ooh, this movie is definitely not PETA approved. There are some graphic scenes and it is most certainly not animal safe. Well, let's go ahead and get into our ratings then. The Witch from 2015. Is it a hack or a slash? Uh, For me, this film was a satisfying tale of witchcraft set in a time period that enhances the spookiness of it all. This is a folktale deeply rooted in history. It's horrific in its own right, and I I was invested from start to finish. This film is a slash for me. I'm I'm not surprised. I'll be I'll be honest. This when I watched this, this made me realize something. I actually really enjoy folk horror. Like it's, I don't know what it is. There's just something about it, you know. One one part about it, it just like feels like uniquely American, and it's not. But it feels like there's something about the American experience that's just gritty and grotesque. Like it's just a pair of like really worn in Levi's jeans and a and a fresh white tee and a pair of like leather boots you've had for 15 years. And when I watch these kind of films, they they also feel really worn in. They feel new enough to be fresh but historically based kind of, kind of like the American experience as well. But you know, when, when watching this, we're in the 1600s, you set us up for slowness, you set us up for boring and they said, no, we're not going to do it. They went in, they started out with a bang and they finished with a bang. And I, and I love that. It's just like in music, you got to start well and you got to end well to make it memorable. So I think they were able to successfully do that for me. It felt unique enough that I'm definitely going to remember this for a long time. So I, I enjoyed it. It kept me asking what the hell's going on the entire time. Even after literally hit pause on the movie, as soon as we get to the credits, I'm thinking, what the hell? That was insane. That was wild. So yeah, it was, it was a ride, but I, I think overall it's a slash. It was a good ride. Okay. Look, I'm not going to beat around the bush. This is a period piece that had me living deliciously. And I find it so hard and, and so difficult to, to care about characters in these time frames and to really think about like, um, you know, colonial America to think about the foundation of America. You know, it's problematic at best. While I think there are so many movies that execute stellar filmmaking to really tell these stories, I think it takes a true talent to do it with as many layers or as in this movie. And to take a 90-minute ride into this family's lives, to feel the pain every step of the way, to have us feeling these things for these characters that still leave us questioning, hmm, if I if I squint my eyes just right, could I blur the lines of what's actually happening? There is so much in this movie that is left open to interpretation, which I absolutely love. This movie didn't bore me. This movie had me invested every step of the way. And for that, it's a slash. And with that, The Witch from 2015 is a universal slash. Now, you can find this movie streaming on HBO Max in the United States, so go check it out. Then join us in the second half so we can taste this butter together. See you in a bit. (laughs) 
In 16th century New England, settlers had to fight to survive the harshest winters, struggle to grow crops to feed their families, all the while worrying about the constant threat of witchcraft. Personal grooming was a luxury few could afford. Thankfully, this is not the 16th century, and support for Hacker Slash is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for all your grooming needs. Now here at Hacker Slash, horror is for everyone, and thankfully, so is Manscaped. They sent us their new Performance Package 4.0, their ultimate hygiene bundle. And let me tell you, I'm glad the 21st century has such well-made tools for keeping your crops preserved all year round. I'm so impressed by this package for your package. So let me break down what's inside. The Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer is waterproof and features their amazing proprietary skin-safe technology. And if you're like me, you'll enjoy having your precious nose holes free of nicks, snags, and tugs. The Lawnmower 4.0, which is, in my opinion, a feat of modern engineering, is their fourth-generation trimmer that has a cutting-edge ceramic blade and their advanced skin-safe technology, and is the best personal trimmer that I've ever used. I was pleasantly surprised to learn that it's also waterproof and has a super bright LED spotlight so I could trim precisely with confidence and cleanliness. The Performance Package 4.0 also includes Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Toner. I like feeling fresh and smelling fresh, and let me tell you, your balls will thank you. Pack it all up in their shed travel bag and throw in a pair of their moisture-wicking boxers, and you will feel as ready as I do to take on the modern world. I love how clean, confident, and ready to start the day Manscaped's products make me feel, and you deserve to also. Join us and over 4 million individuals worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code SLASH20 at Manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Welcome back, folks. You are now entering the spoiler zone for The Witch, which has earned a universal slash. Now, we have a lot to unpack here, but before we get into the specifics of our ratings, Sean, take us through the kills. We have a decent amount of kills in this film. I think we have a total of six kills throughout the film, not including animals. Some are justified. Some are, you know, not justified. But I got to say, and hopefully I don't get a lot of hate for this, but my favorite kill, I don't know, it's got to be the baby. Is that allowed? I don't know. But... It's not that I like to see the baby get killed because that is just beyond awful, but it really sets the tone for the evil that was unfolding throughout the film, right? Watching the witch like smash the remains of that baby into like a moisturizer with a butter churn or whatever the the hell she was using and then rubbing it all over herself, like that was, whew, that's got to be the most intense kill for me. Yeah, listen, baby Samuel getting got horrific traumatic shocking it was one of two moments that had my jaw figuratively on the floor i think you can go there uh not because you like seeing babies die but because of how shocking it was right like that really did set the tone and boy was it spooky i think my favorite death though is actually Catherine, because at that point i was just ready for her to go uh not necessarily because i found her particularly unlikable like obviously There's a lot of pain that she's experiencing in this movie. Obviously, we feel for Thomason's character so much and Catherine really just like keeps digging at her and digging at her and digging at her. But then you have to balance. She seemed perfectly happy at the beginning of the movie. Seemed like they all had a great relationship. So to see Catherine finally get put out of her misery, right, and be released of her pain and suffering, I think emotionally it was satisfying. But also I was ready for her to go. 
Well, you've both picked some some great choices here. I could never have picked Baby Samuel. I felt too bad. That was a horrific moment. I really wondered, like, am I going to be able to make it through this movie after having seen that on screen? I feel like there was probably, a, a, like, I don't know, there's got to be a better way to, I don't know, what is she doing? Like, rejuvenating herself, witching the family, cursing them? Like, can't she just, like, trick William into giving her a pearl necklace or something? But anyway, I think my favorite death, is Williams because the entire time I'm seeing Black Phillip on screen, first of all, he's cute, right? He's a goat. Goats are cool. They look like they do fun stuff, but those horns are freaking massive. And I just knew like at some point somebody's getting like gored by one of these horns. And I'm glad it finally happened at the end there with, with William. I'm glad that somebody got got by a giant goat. And realistically, I I, I mean, I knew that the goat was going to be a presence in this movie. We see him around. I've seen gifts leading up to the moments in this in, in this particular scene. But the suddenness with which he gets William was unexpected. He-Man just steps outside and then, bam, bitch went down. Yeah, definitely. William's death was, was gory. It was intense, for sure. Catherine's, I felt, was justified in a way. I do, I'm just going to go on the record. I don't like to see babies die. I'm just going to put that out there, just for the, for the soft-hearted listeners out there. I do think, though, that, you know, baby Samuel's death scene, as tragic as it is, as heartbreaking is, as emotional as it is, really lends itself to one of my favorite visuals. And it's not the baby goo. It's not the blood. But it's the candles. It's the dim lighting. It's the darkness of this film. Everything about this movie is washed in gray tones and just like a really neutral palette. And it's really there in the darkness when I think this movie ironically shines. You know, we have the the rain at night when we find Caleb uh, out in the dark alone. He's dazed, he's confused, he's bewitched, he's cursed. And it's in the darkest you know, images in this movie that I think we get some of its greatest beauty. Yeah, that I mean, so that was one of my favorite visual elements as well was the was the lighting and specifically the play off of the candlelight um, throughout the movie. But I also uh, thought, you know, if I was really trying to dig deep, I thought I really enjoyed watching like the crops decay throughout the film. I thought that was a nice touch. There's something that, di- that that's something that like did actually plague farmers and would cause serious illness, like the disease of that crop. And it reminds me, Chris, of a movie movie called Honeydew. Oh, no. Yes, that I subjected you to uh, a while back. And so when I saw the crops decaying and and I just immediately went there and I was like, oh, geez. I, it was actually hard for me. I know you guys picked some out. It was really hard for me to pick one because the scenery, the wardrobe, the entire like period correctness of it all was incredibly impressive. But honestly, I'm going to go with Black Phillip as my favorite visual element. I think on his own, he's just really intimidating. And you know, the horns are cool. It gives him like this feeling of aggression, even though he's just a goat trying to live his life. But I, I don't know. There's something about him. Like he's, he's bigger. He's like a gigantic goat. And I've, you, when you've seen big goats in person, like they are quite intimidating. I think without him, even if they had replaced his function in the story with a different type of animal or a different character, it wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah. You know what? I think had we gotten just bunny Philip the entire time, you're right. It, it would have been a really inadequate experience. Fox, Philip, I don't know. It doesn't have the same ring to it, you know? I think as a Capricorn, I endorse this goat fully. He's just a man trying to do his job, recruiting. <laughs> yeah. Black Philip, definitely good visuals. Uh, it's something to be said, right? That uh, animals is, you know, as innocent as they can be, they can also be super evil. 
Now, if this was based in the water, we could have had an evil dolphin because we all know they're like total jerks. And that would have worked really well. But I think a scene that worked really well in this film was when Caleb was alone in the woods. When they got separated, when he's chasing down the rabbit, there's just something about that scene that is so gloomy and so dreary. I mean, obviously he's lost and he's getting worried and then everyone else is getting worried. But like, we all know there's that tension. We all know something bad is about to happen and another kid is going to get got. And when he gets further and further into the woods and he gets more and more lost because this is the second time being in the woods ever and he lives next to them. First of all, that's insane. They should have explored those woods, put up markers, maybe a little arrow kind of thing going on. I don't know. But like, you know, the witch is out there somewhere. We know she's got a cool little like, you know, tiny house. And so the entire time I'm thinking he's, he's going to go to the witch. He's going to get there. She's going to do something to him. She's going to boil him and mash him and put him in a stew or something. But yeah, I just, that whole scene worked so well for me. Okay. But look, I got to point out that the entire time he was getting got by that witch, Caleb in particular, I thought, Oh, is the horn dog little brother going to be vexed by her bosom? And then it reminded me of that really ridiculous synopsis of P2 that we read where he like one person writing the description for that movie kept calling her a buxom businesswoman. It was just bizarre. The way that we fixated on Thomason's chest and then, you know, we see that like obviously Caleb is probably like hitting puberty at some point. It was just a little bit weird. And I thought, Caleb, had you been less of a horn dog, this would not be a problem. I got that like his sin was lust or whatever, but we didn't need to do the like the zoom in on the cleavage. Was it like, was that a thing we needed? No. I'll be the one to say it, right? I think it did help to kind of explain, you know, what was happening to this family and that this family, you know, felt they were so absolute in their religious beliefs, yet all of them you know, eventually fell to sin, right? And so that's kind of the the progression of the movie. And I think it was, I think it was fitting. I think it was information that we needed to keep the story moving forward, especially to keep Thomason's kind of like pureness throughout the film. Okay, but look, all I'm saying is Fowler didn't do a damn thing. That dog didn't commit a sin. Fowler didn't deserve to die. Not at all. That was, that was the toughest thing to watch for sure. Uh, that poor dog. For sure, it was really tough to watch. I think something that wasn't tough to watch is something that, you know, obviously concludes the entire film. I love seeing Thomason kind of come into her power. And I think there's a lot that's open to debate, right? It's, was Thomason really going to be a witch the whole time? Did she only turn to it at the end after her entire family was lost? Was the plan always for Black Phillip to recruit her specifically, or did she just kind of happen to survive so he picked up what he could while she was there? So I think there's like a, lo- a lot of questions there, but to see her, one, confront Black Phillip, but then two, to emerge into the woods and to see the rest of the witches having a Sabbath dancing by the fire, it was at that moment that we see these women kind of like dancing, chanting, And I wrote in my notes, A24 really loves screaming and chanting naked women in the climax of a movie, huh? Now, honestly, this reminds me of Midsommar. And I know that this scene, this moment in Midsommar does not happen at the end of that movie. But it was just a bizarre moment. It was jarring in Midsommar. It was a little bit jarring here. But I think it worked better here for me. It was so perfect. Okay, now I get it. I get it, having seen Midsommar. But... 
this was so perfect because uh, this is this is what you would come to expect from all the things that you've learned about covens of witches back in this time period of women as witches dancing naked in the woods around the fire hysterically all of this stuff right and so i think that it was fitting in this story but i gotta say there were a lot of scenes that i really enjoyed in this film uh to kind of play off of what you were saying earlier mac um with caleb kind of chasing the rabbit through the woods the so obviously the witch is playing tricks with caleb luring him over to her right um rabbits have been have long been associated with witchcraft uh and i think though the end of that chase if you will right the one of my favorite scenes was the witch herself emerging from that like little dilapidated witch hut walking out like a creepy ass little red riding hood the red on her cape really popped and it made the scene really captivating and beautiful to look at that was got to be one of my absolute favorite scenes in the film but it's a tough one because there was a scene that we got like a glimpse of. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of runtime there, but the scene where we see, was it a silhouette of the witch herself? Uh, I'm not sure. Like in front of that giant full moon in the background, that to me was awesome also. Okay. So that witch emerges with her red cape. And you know what? Look, there's that moment in the seminal classic Oliver and Company. And the little chihuahua says, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. Yeah, if that's the witch that I'm confronted with, curse me too. Sign me up. I'm done. I'm out there. I know I just talked shit about Caleb a second ago for being a horn dog and getting cursed, but great moment, stunning visually in more ways than one. You got bewitched. And and in his defense, it's just it's just the one arm that you wouldn't want to look at in that case, I guess, you know, while she's in that form. Just the just the one bad arm. Yeah, and uh and to to that point, right? And that just really plays off of that sin of lust right that that uh, all of these family members are falling to right and so we see kind of hints of all of those um sins throughout the different characters right like uh you know we see william with like his pride and catherine with envy of her like beautiful daughter coming of age and and uh obviously we talked about caleb with lust and um and uh, the tough one, right, I, I, that I couldn't kind of put my finger on was like Mercy and Jonas, right? Like what what were those sins? Being little assholes. <laughs> little bastard children. Got a link for the show notes uh, from actually a Reddit post that really breaks it down. And this is just obviously one person's interpretation. Uh, but I think it's it's kind of a pretty spot on interpretation of what everyone's sins are. So when you go through there, I think pride is, is very obvious. William mentions it, you know, it's, it's the first scene of the movie really kind of shows it. Caleb obviously has got lust going on, but I think this Redditor mentions that Mercy has wrath as, as her sin, uh, which is kind of interesting considering the fact that she's called Mercy, right? Um, but I think that she's, like you mentioned, a jerk. She's a really kind of a, of a jerk of a kid and kids can sometimes be jerks and she just always wants to get back at her sister. Um, so I guess I could see it. Good call. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't catch that at first, but now that I think about it, that's a, that's a perfect fit. They also mentioned, uh, for Jonah sloth, uh, because he appears to not really do much for the film. Um, and does, you know, not really adding much to the life at the farm there in terms of chores and everything. Uh, but he apparently there's some kind of reference to Jonah from the Bible. I don't know enough about that story to really make the connection. 
envy as as a uh, as a sin for Catherine, which I guess I could kind of I could kind of see because like you know she's got envy for her own daughter, which is disturbing. But I think the one that really kind of like blew my brain up was original sin for Samuel because it's the easiest one, right? It's a baby. What sin could there be? And for them, it's the original sin. But this redditor also then links um, greed and gluttony to Thomason, which is, I don't know, is that fair? Is it not fair? I'm not sure. I don't know if that's fair. I'd have to, I, I can't put, I can't place it, but maybe I'm missing something. Hmm. Uh, Thomason's sin is being the only sane person in her family. How greedy of her. Yeah. And that's where I'm at, right? Like I felt like Thomason really, you know, was, I don't know if you would say innocent through and through, right? I don't think, I don't know if that's the right way to describe her, but um, greed or gluttony, I'm not sure about that. That's a, that's a tough one. I feel like, um, I feel like everything that happened to Thomason was the direct result of her family. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the the sin angle is a really, really interesting one that was completely lost on me when watching the movie. And I think that's really beautiful to, to just see how many layers there are there. When I was experiencing this and looking at just Thomason's life and how she's kind of one of the linchpins in this family. Sure, everyone is pitching in and, and you know doing their share to keep the homestead going. But to see where she is as the oldest child who is also almost like a young mother of sorts to her younger siblings, to see how much of a burden that places on the oldest sibling is one, interesting to see and how that like manifests in Thomason. But then two, to see almost what we had in Halloween ends where we see nurtured evil versus natural evil. So again, we have Black Phillip, uh, we have these whispers to the other children, but then we see Thomason who is looking for love, who wants to be loved, who is just trying to do her part, who is trying to keep the family together, who feels tremendous guilt over baby Samuel and what happens in the beginning of the movie. And we see how she's slowly exiled from her own family and even who she appears to have one of the closest relationships with, with her father, to even see that moment where he, it seems like he's going to comfort her and then he just demands that she confesses. To see the heartbreak there was so painful and just gutting. They do a really good job of, of showing such an interesting reaction to that situation because there's obviously some time that's passed and we're all expecting that everyone is just going to be really gloomy and down. But like the dad is just like, so 1600s about it. He's just like, this sucks. I have to keep going. My family will die if I don't get them food. Come on, son, let's kill a rabbit or something. And all of us are just like, oh, guys, like take a moment, deal with the fact that you have this loss in your life you know, help each other. But no, I mean, this is like literally if they don't get something other than than corn with fungus on it, they about to die. Yeah, this dude just should have never left the settlement. Let's be honest. Like this guy, come on, just uh, that's the whole thing right here. Like we can all just point it all the way back to him at the very beginning. Like if he didn't, uh, if he if he just sucked up his pride, everything would be good. They'd be in the settlement, you know, uh, just living a normal life and, and having a good time. Again, classic dad moves his family into a house they can't afford, but now they dumped all the savings into it. But also there's ghosts. So sorry, family, you're all going to die because of it. You're not wrong. I think that shot of Thomason from from the first like major scene of the movie that's also, of course, in the trailer where she realizes that the baby is now missing is 
it's everything. It's everything about this movie. That reaction, her like looking, running off into the woods and everything because they're like her mom kind of imagines that she's like, Oh, well, I guess I'll keep going. But you kind of see it in her that like she is so struck with disbelief and like run towards the woods. She won't go in, of course, because they told her not to. But like she cares about what's going on. She also doesn't want to be sold off to some random family, of course, but like she just wants to do whatever the right thing is supposed to be in the moment, like keep going, make it through this horrible existence that they're going through. Yeah. And, you know, for as much as I thought the twins were little assholes and I really didn't care for them. It's amazing to me looking back and experiencing this and feeling this throughout the movie, how much I cared for every member of the family, but just because of the shitty hand that they were dealt and having to battle every step of the way. And the moment that I felt the most empathy was when we had those kids listening to their parents' argument and the parents being foolish enough to think that they were sleeping just because they didn't respond. But then to see the look on their faces, to hear their parents arguing and fighting and realizing that they won't make it through the winter, that they're going to have to have Thomas and serve another family, so to speak. It was tragic. And I think about those moments where you grow up and you hear your parents fighting and like maybe you don't even understand what's going on, but then you're a kid and you're distracted by your video games. But like, no, these kids were serious as fuck. They were all of age to understand how much everything was falling apart around them. And while the twins could play with Black Phillip and just try to find some moments of joy, Caleb and Thomason could not. And that was devastating. Yeah, extremely relatable what you just said, right? Like that moment where they're all listening in. Like I feel like everyone's been there in in some sense, listening at the top of the stairs or listening, you know, across the hall or whatever it is about something serious, whether it's about you or you're just interested in what they're talking about. But yeah, like it's super relatable that moment. It does kind of show that Caleb had to be an adult before he was ready to be an adult. And he obviously like was not ready to make the decisions that he had to make when, when he decides in the middle of the night, I'm going to get up early and, and I'm going to go fix this. I'm going to solve this. Like he wasn't ready to do that. That was way too much responsibility put upon him. And Thomason, I mean, the girl can't do anything right for them. No matter what she does, it's the wrong thing. Oh, like even if she, you know, like, well, Hey, watch after the kids. I'm trying and they won't listen to me because one, I'm not their mother. They're just like, yeah, whatever. You obviously didn't try hard enough. Oh, in that moment where she she asks for her mother to find favor in her and her mom's like, I will if you just tell me. And then we had that moment where William confesses to selling the cup. And in that brief moment, she's ready to welcome Thomason back. But then how easily she cast her aside as soon as the little brats <laughs> accuse her of being a witch. It, it shows that. No matter how much love there was in this family, that love became very fickle in the face of all the grief and the stress that they didn't know how to manage effectively in their home. You know, in considering how perfect or imperfect this movie may be, it's really just a big old bummer and that might be the worst part of it. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. This movie is so beautiful, it's so poignant and so impactful. And you know what? If I could feel just 2% less sad, I rewatch this movie more frequently than I currently can. I'm I'm torn because the whole baby scene was a lot. And so it is kind of the worst part of the movie to me. But if, if, you know, if I play nice and I pick another thing about it, I think it's this, the, the flying at the end, it kind of got cheesy for me. It even, Hey, there's other movies from a 24 that feature something like this. It's cheesy from, from them too. I just like, if you're just going to like float off 
and like feel so happy and, and whatever. I don't know. Just like show it a different way because it's, it's so, it's so bad. Was that little broomstick I saw her hovering on? It was quite funny. Golden snitch. Yeah, there was a somewhat of a broomstick or something for sure. The worst part of the movie for me for sure was the dog dying. Obviously, like no one wants to see that. Like it was bad enough to hear the dog dying, let alone seeing it mutilated in the woods like that. That's got to be the worst part. But I got to say, what a fucked up time to live. I mean, honestly, uh, this really sheds light on the power that men had back then, right? The fear and danger that like women went through for centuries. Again, like I, I alluded to before, the misogyny and, and all of that that ultimately led to such events like the Salem witch trials that came some years after this and, and specifically how difficult it was to prove your innocence and almost always resulting in death upon doing so. It's a catch-22. Real bummer of a time once again. Again, you know, I mentioned in, in my worst part, there is very little wrong with this movie. It is memorable. It is powerful. It is emotional in a lot of ways without being so emotional that it makes me break down and cry. I do think I need some space and time before I watch it again, but it's certainly worthy of a rewatch, if not for anything but then to make sense of the fucking bird pecking that woman's nipple. That is disgusting. How can you not rewatch a movie that has that? Oh my gosh. Well, I think this also deserves a place in my folk horror arsenal. I don't know how soon I'll get a chance to get to it, but I'm I'm not averse to it. You know, I, I think there's just something about this genre. It's like so dark and so gloomy, but on like a rainy day, it kind of like fits perfectly. Yeah, this movie definitely has rewatchability for sure. I don't know if I'll be watching it again anytime soon, but I do think that it's a great film. Um, I definitely, now that we've talked about like the similarities in some, in some ways to Midsommar with that scene, right? I definitely feel like this fits in with some other films such as Midsommar that a lot of people really enjoyed without being big fans of the horror genre itself. So I can see myself watching this with friends that are looking for a good horror film uh, that don't really resonate with slashers or other more conventional horror films that we have come to expect over the years. But yeah, I, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll find my uh, way back to this film at some point. While we're all open to rewatching this at some point in the future, let's see if we can keep a candle lit for it with Max Factor Fiction. Number one, director Robert Eggers meant for the film to be interpreted as allegory, but test audiences continued to take it only literally, so subtleties were amplified to make his message clearer. Hmm, I want to say I can kind of see that. I'll go fact. Nice, this one is actually a fiction. The plot was meant to be taken literally, but there are small things that they scattered throughout the film that like might let viewers come up with non-witchy reasons for the madness that's on the screen. One of those favorite things is like everyone talks about the corn and how there's like a fungus on the corn that can cause hallucinations and all that kind of stuff, so I really like that. Absolutely. Number two. Anya Taylor-Joy and Harvey Scrimshaw, who plays Caleb, wore green bodysuits, which allowed the visual effects team to CGI them into appearing naked. Ooh, I'm going to go fact. That seems like, I don't know, they're they're young. I don't know, maybe that sounds like uh, let's, let's not have them naked on film. This one is also a fiction. Ugh. Instead, though, they wore tightly fitting underwear that could be digitally removed. Number three, Black Phillip was supposed to appear way more in the film, but Charlie the Goat wasn't quite trained well enough to make that happen. Uh, this one, I feel like I'm going to go fiction because I think we saw just enough of this goat 
but I'm probably going to fail at this whole thing. Uh, you know, honestly, this one is actually a fact. So he was difficult and aggressive and even hospitalized Ralph Innocent, causing him to continue filming on painkillers. He said he was horrible, really, really horrible. From the moment we set eyes on each other, it was just kind of hate at first sight. He had two modes, chilling out and doing nothing or attacking me. The director said, you can't train a goat. The goat was a fucking nightmare. Hey, Black Phillip in his purest form. Legend has it the goat was more of a dick than the kids were. Number four, Robert Eggers was a stickler for authenticity, going so far as to CGI out Anya Taylor-Joy's earring holes. I hope this is a fact because he went off of historical documents and wanted to really be true to the time period, but we'll see. So this one's a fiction, but he wishes he did. It's like the one thing that bothers him about the film. He even admitted, though, maybe that's getting kind of insane. Hmm. I didn't notice them, but apparently in HD, like it was driving him nuts. I didn't notice those at all, but I agree with him. He should have paid more attention. And number five. Anya Taylor-Joy thought her performance in her first feature film was horrible and that she would never work again. See if I can get one of these right. I want to say fact because most people don't like their own performances. This one is a fact. She said, I thought I'd never work again and I still get shivers thinking about it. It was just the worst feeling of I have let the people down I love most in the world. I didn't do it right. Nice. And look at how well they did. What a stunning performance. And that's been Fact or Fiction. Well, there you have it, folks. A stunning performance indeed, because The Witch has earned a universal slash. Now, we've certainly had a robust discussion here, but it doesn't end here by any means. We want to know what you think. You can join in on the conversation by hanging out with us for free over in our Discord. Click the link in our show notes to sign up. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, consider becoming one of our patrons. Visit patreon.com slash hacker slash to enjoy more of the show with early access, extended episodes, bonus content, and live shows. Our thanks again to Manscaped for their support of Hacker Slash. We'll see you next time, folks. And remember, we are your judges and not you ours. Don't go into the woods at night or you might just get bewitched. Bewitched.